Hi, and welcome to Take Every Thought Captive, our weekly look at the Catholic intellectual tradition and an exploration of the authors, books, and topics that have shaped Catholic thinking for 2,000 years. I'm Dr. Richard Bolzakelli, lecturer in theology at Catholic Studies Academy, and I'm joined this week by my colleagues, Dr. Benjamin Smith, lecturer in philosophy for Catholic Studies Academy, and Joe Grossheim, a doctoral candidate at the University of St. Thomas Houston, and an educator and associate dean at Chesterton Academy of the Incarnation in Franklin, Tennessee. Today we'll be talking about an issue very close to our mission at Catholic Studies Academy, namely Western civilization and the liberal arts. So, Dr. Smith, we throw the term liberal arts around all the time, but we sometimes forget that there's a whole tradition of thought behind the very idea of liberal arts, or mm -hmm. arts that make a person free, arts of living by which a person is made free. Can you tell us more about that? Sure, yeah, happy to. Uh, some of this I want to talk about today came from a recent course I'm teaching on medieval philosophy, uh, in which we talk a good bit at the beginning about uh, the... Um, developments of uh, the liberal arts within Western civilization, uh, sort of a propedeutic to talking about you know, philosophical argumentation. Um, but yeah, it has, you know, it has a meaning that uh, we can talk about that meaning, I think, systematically or historically. I think for, uh, I think it's useful to at least uh, start with some history uh, here and, and look at it in those terms. Um, the phrase liberal arts, right? Um, does come from Latin. It's uh, we find that phrase first stated in Cicero. Uh, interestingly enough, right, and that is he, he calls it the artes liberalis, right. And um, now that's not the liberal arts existed well before the phrase liberal arts, mm -hmm. but that phrase, right, calling these arts that way, we find at least in my research so far first stated explicitly in uh, Cicero. Of course, Cicero was himself, you know, uh, a great statesman, uh, a great scholar, a decent philosopher, or at least historian of philosophy, I think you'd have to say, uh, and uh, really just, you know, very influential. Uh, I would say there's there were there have been times in Western Europe where he would have been held up as one of, Western civilization, as, you know, one of the 10 great people to know and study, right? Um, but interestingly, right, he calls us the liberal arts because it is that they are the arts, as you said, uh, Rich, of the free man, the free citizen, right? They are the arts. And I think this is really interesting. And, and of course, goes back to Cicero's understanding of, of even prior ancient political philosophy. They're the arts that you need in order to be a deliberative citizen, right? Mm -hmm. You know, to be a citizen is to be somebody who can deliberate. And Cicero would have been very, you know, fond of this view, who mm -hmm. can deliberate about the matters of the city, about the good of the city, about the laws of the city, right? So really this, you know, uh, of course that fits him as a senator, right, uh, of uh, ancient Rome, of the Republican Rome at the very end of the Republic. Um, but, you know, was not, uh, was something, you know, that's been picked up and passed on, right, throughout really the history of the liberal arts, which is that the liberal arts are essential for good citizenship. Mm -hmm. That is, if you are going to be deliberating on, matters of state right as citizens then you need to have these kinds of arts right and um you know that's, that's kind of interesting i think well why like why why do i need these kinds of arts right uh in order to be a good participant right uh in um uh you know the polis right you could say i'm I, 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 i'm just qualified because i'm here 
right? <laughs> you know, and yeah. and you know that's certainly not going to be the the view of anybody uh, like Cicero or Aristotle or Plato, you know, from the the ancient world, right? So, um, uh, you know, uh, Cicero calls these things right the liberal arts, and they are called that in Rome, right? But of course, they don't just sort of exist originally in Rome, like many things in, in Rome, they come from ancient Greece, you know, um, there's, uh, uh, you know, a old, uh, sort of classic classical teachers, you know, would talk about the fact that, you know, Greece is the place of philosophy, right? Greece is the place of the theater, but Rome makes laws and roads, right? <laughs> and, you know, the, the, the law, you know, Rome doesn't invent philosophy, but it's good at it sort of developing Greek philosophy, right? It doesn't uh, invent the liberal arts, but it's good at preserving them and passing them on, right? And of course, sort of systematizing them. So the liberal arts, though, you know, the, those arts we call liberal originally come from Greece, right? Uh, four of them developed really out of that sort of, um, that Pythagorean part, aspect of ancient Greek thought. So Pythagoras, you know, is a, is a person... I don't spend a lot of study, time studying, but was very highly regarded in the ancient world, right? Mm -hmm. uh, especially among the Greeks. I mean, if I, though you might want to correct me, but I think he's one of the seven sages or something like that uh, of the ancient Greeks. You know, so he's he's thought of very highly. Plato thinks, you know, yeah, very highly. He appears in yeah, Plato's dialogues. So right. um, he was a critically important figure. Mm -hmm. uh, it's funny because we, we don't have all that much that really survives from him, mm -mm. but in his own time, he was he was a huge figure. Yeah, it was very highly regarded, right? And uh, and one of the things that's really fascinating, we tend to think this is a modern view, but it's not. Uh, Pythagoras thought, you know, that reality is fundamentally mathematical. Mm -hmm. yeah. Now, you know, we would want to adjust that claim to some degree, but I mean, it's certainly true, right? That a lot of reality is mathematical, right? I mean, you can In fact, study. Yeah, you might even argue that. You might even argue that um, the ca his case has been made stronger over the centuries, right? Sure, I think yeah. that's yeah, I think that's fair, yeah. Um, and so the, uh, well, you know, Pythagoras wants to understand the world through math, through quantity, right. And through quantitative reasoning and quantitative relations. And out of that grow in ancient Greece, uh, the arts of music, astronomy, arithmetic, and geometry, right. Mm -hmm. You might be surprised to hear about music, music here as an art, isn't thought of music as performing the art, right. But understanding, uh, music through number. Right, uh, an extension, right, which is kind of interesting. Okay, mm -hmm. um, and same with all of these uh, four together. Again, that's music, astronomy, arithmetic, and geometry. They all involve quantity, right, and quantitative reasoning, proportion, uh, things of that nature, right, and learning to reason on the basis of mathematics, right, um, and really, very importantly, from a Pythagorean point of view, learning to understand the world. Right. I mean, I think that's that's mm -hmm. part of uh, Pythagoras's view, part of the liberal arts view, um, that are some, you know, at least some who promote the liberal arts, that quantitative reasoning is a way to understand the world around us, right? So I think we could kind yeah. of think about this, mm -hmm. you know. I'll admit, you know, when I was in college, you know, mathematics wasn't my strongest point. Uh, mm -hmm. I'm much better at it now, actually, than when I was in college. Um, but there is a lot of reasoning that's used right in mathematics. We don't think about it as, as a form of logic, but it's arguable, right. That at least some kind of logic is at play, right. Um, within um, yeah. mathematical reasoning. Well, yeah. I think it's deeply logical. Um, mm -hmm. 
symbolic logic for example is basically just math right i mean it's it's mm. in many ways it's just math you've you've turned um concepts into symbols mm -hmm. sure yeah um and you basically make equations right right yeah yeah no. I, I, for for my learning you know i understood symbolic logic and then i understood algebra better uh, -huh. uh which uh -huh. is actually <laughs> kind of weird but that's just maybe my quirks but uh but yeah there's there's this sort of underlying rationality and logic to it so one thing that's important about these arts, right, and why they were valued is that they help you to think rationally and abstractly, mm -hmm. right? You know, you're not dealing with issues like justice in itself, right? But you are dealing with issues of like, what is a square? What is a circle? How do mm -hmm. I use definitions in a deduction, right? Those sorts of things, right? Right, Which, again, so you get habits of mind. That's right, that's right. I, I yeah, recognize yeah. that... Um, words can be used in different ways i'm sensitive mm. to that possibility in mm. my discussions with people so i realize that in this time when we're where we come into a loggerheads we have a disagreement about something mm -hmm. the first thing we need to do is step back and make sure that we're actually talking about the same thing that we understand right. it in sure. the same yep. way yep absolutely and if we can't and I do think... that mm. we're never going to get anywhere right that's right yes absolutely yeah. and that's key to the the political process right uh and to the deliberative process that goes into this idea that citizens need this right it's interesting i think you know you might make the claim that this is a definition by property rather than an essential definition but it is interesting that historically the way cicero is defining this is a political right sort of definition of the liberal arts these are the arts of the good citizen right of the effective citizen um you know which again may not be essential but might be you know sort of a property uh, it's kind of reminds me a little bit. Uh, and one of the things I like to point out when we're talking about the virtues, how, you know, we, we tend to like to talk about the cardinal virtues, but just as popular, especially in the late medieval period and in the Renaissance was, and then they were calling them the civic virtues, right? Mm -hmm. The cardinal virtues and civic virtues are exactly the same, right? Um, uh, they're the virtues that, that make you fitted to be a good citizen or effective citizen, you know? Um, but in any event, uh, the, you know, this does create mathematical arts, create mm -hmm. good habits of mind. But also, secondly, they help you to understand the world around you, right? One of the uh, arts that's become, uh, mathematical arts, that I think has become very popular in our own time and I think is very interesting is uh, statistics, right? And statistical reasoning mm -hmm. and uh, probabilities. One of the logic books I use actually has a whole uh, section on statistical reasoning, and it develops very naturally from, um, you know, looking at classical logic, looking at modern logic that you could move into thinking, okay, well, how am I going to be rational when I'm thinking about probabilities, right? Um, and I, th I think that's very helpful when you're thinking about uh, yeah, political, of course. Debate, political in, discourse. In the contemporary world where we've got advances in medical technology Mm -hmm. that sort of research depends heavily upon statistical analysis yep right what right. portion of patients respond well to this drug what portion of these adverse effects etc mm -hmm. and also in economics statistical reasoning is uh is particularly important how you interpret those statistics wh where you derive the causes for what you're seeing um those are important analytical questions that go along with economics mm -hmm. but they're mining data, right? They're mining right. data. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah. And then in addition to these four um, uh, mathematical arts, we also have 
the development in ancient Greece of at least two, right, uh, explicitly accepted um, uh, arts that are more linguistic, right, in character. Uh, and so we have rhetoric and logic, right? Um, and they, you know, I think it's arguable, you know, different scholars, scholars differ on this a little bit, that they kind of grew up together, right, uh, within sort of the give and push of uh, political discourse in Athens. So there's a very long history, and this is well documented, that in Athens, eloquence of speech was always prized, right? Mm -hmm. um, and that was true of many city-states, not all, right? Uh, but in many city-states. And it wasn't even prized in every um, civilization. Like, a certain kind of eloquence was prized in the Persian Empire, right? But it was a courtly kind of eloquence that didn't have to do with persuasion, right? Mm -hmm. It was more sort of a kind of expression or recognition, right? Of uh, Or petition, right? Uh, with respect to the emperor. But in in democratic Athens, right, the importance of persuasive speech is is very much to the fore, right? And I think in a part yeah. that's because of their political arrangement, mm -hmm. which is that the assembly, right, is sovereign, right, in a very strong sense, right? There, you know, one thing that's really interesting in ancient Athens is there's no there are no set of constitutional rights. Uh, there is a constitution in the sense of like a set of offices and how you get the offices, but there's not like a bill of rights, right? Mm -hmm. uh, and so, you know, the assembly can have can vote to have you executed for losing a battle, right? So, like, it's it's a rough democracy, right? When we think uh -huh. democracy, we need to kind of it is a democracy, but you know, it it's uh has very expansive powers, right? Um, now, because of that, they also wanted to turn over the executive offices on a regular basis and all that sort of thing. But you can see if you have an assembly like that why persuasive speech would be so attractive, right? Mm -hmm. As an art to master, because that's an art towards success. Mm -hmm. Now, alongside that, of course, grew up logic, which, you know, you can sort of think of as represented by Plato and, of course, at the highest level by Aristotle, where you sort of get the sort of, okay, well, we grant that this is a persuasive speech, but is it does it actually bring us closer to the truth or not, right? Mm -hmm. And there you get... I think, yeah, persuasion and truth don't always go together, right? Yeah, mm -hmm. right. Um, and so, you know, that's an important, obviously, distinction, right? Especially yeah. if you're you know, thinking but they, politics. We should hope that they would be brought together as much sure. as possible, right? That's right, yeah. Uh, yeah. And um, and there are going to be times, as we find out, you know, we see this in the Platonic Dialogues for sure. Mm -hmm. There are times when the question is just difficult to answer. Right? right and how far we can go with um with logic is is limited sure we can get we can get to a certain place we can rule out certain things but we may not be able to arrive at exactly what the answer is we may mm -hmm. not know mm -hmm. and that's when um if in a case like that a judgment may still have to be made one way or the other right? sure. it might be the case where doing nothing is not an option mm -hmm. yeah, um, yeah but what to do is still a big question mark right sure yeah, and, yeah, and that's where that's where persuasion becomes sort of um, an important thing. Yeah, yeah, you can see that, especially you know if you're relying on credibility, right? Mm -hmm. At some point, you say, "Well, we can't quite figure this out, but what is what's worked in the past?" <laughs> you know, like mm -hmm. what uh, what have the ancestors said? What do the great heroes say? And, and what know, do we value? Sort of sure, mm -hmm. right? What yeah. do we value? Who are we? Who do sure. we who do we want to be? Yeah. Right, and yeah. what 
what's the relationship between this course of action that we may or may not take and that identity that we mm -hmm. want to pursue? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, so I want to, I want to return to this mathematical issue in okay. Pythagoras. Mm -hmm. Right. So far be it for me to claim any sort of expertise in math. I, <laughs> that's certainly not my strong suit, but, um, but I do find it really interesting the relationship between Pythagoras and music, as you mentioned earlier, mm -hmm. um, because there, I think, what you find in Pythagoras, it's not just in music, but in other areas too, this idea that mathematics isn't just logical, it's beautiful. And mm -hmm. that the um, even if the very structure of reality is is mathematical, according to Pythagoras's view, right? Mm -hmm. Then it stands to reason that our perception of beauty would also have mathematical elements to it. Sure, mm -hmm. I think that that's comes right. out in mm -hmm. the way that he approaches music, right, mm -hmm. and other sort of ratios, right? Sure. And today we've done a great deal of study on the relationship between mathematical ratios and perceptions of beauty. And again, it seems to lend a lot of credence to Pythagoras's view. Mm. Um, so I don't know, to me, that's a really, it's a really interesting thing, right? That there's truth in beauty, that there's rationality in beauty. Mm -hmm. Beauty isn't just something completely random and arbitrary, right? It's not, it's not just that I happen to have a certain response to some, to some particular thing, right? To a sound or to a, to an object. Right. Yeah. Um, it, no, there are things, some things are simply in themselves beautiful mm -hmm. because mm -hmm. of the way they're constituted. That seems to me an insight in, in Pythagoras that, it it seems I, I don't know. I mean, we we act today as if that can't possibly be the case, but I'm I'm not sure about that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think I mean I think especially if you were teaching music in a liberal arts setting, I think that's one of the conclusions you would draw the students towards, right? Mm -hmm. Like, what are we yeah. learning here? Well, we're seeing right that you know this music it sounds beautiful. Now we've looked at the mathematical structure underneath, right? This the sound that I'm experiencing, you know. And here's this mathematical structure, and it is like, isn't it interesting, right? That this mathematical structure yeah. gives rise because of its proportion or because of uh, its rationality to something that is beautiful, right? Yeah, and the contrary is strong there too, right? You show right. the the disproportion in notes that don't agree. Yeah, I don't think anybody really likes Glass. Uh, what's his name? Uh, is it Philip Glass? Is that the name of the composer? Do you know, like the atonal composer? Yeah, I know what you're talking about. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Like, I don't think anybody actually likes him. I don't think anybody <laughs> actually thinks his music is beautiful. They just like think... throws them on when they're kicking back. <laughs> That's to the right. one. I don't think anybody thinks that. I think I mean, there, just... there, there is nasty music out there now, which is uh, interesting and striking. Granted, that I think Pythagoras has shown that mm -hmm. beauty is in the proportion. And there's there's things like dubstep that does exist that people do listen to. Um, so, what is that? Oh, it's it's just it's a mess of noise. That's okay. the only way I can describe it. There is no order or proportion. Hmm. Interesting. It's, yeah, it's it's grating to the ears. I think. But people um, like to listen to it. I, I suppose. I mean, <laughs> people make it, and I assume that they make it for sure, audiences. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's, That's funny. Um, interesting. So this is a, a that 
So that observation is actually relevant to our discussion, right? To what we mm -hmm. said we would talk about when we when we started up. Um, there does seem today to be, in, at least in, in my observation, this is what it looks like to me. There does seem to me to be a full-scale assault on beauty in all its different ways. And I mm -hmm. think it's been going on for a very long time. Yeah, sure. We've talked in the past about, um, both in podcasts and just informally by ourselves, mm -hmm. we've talked about um, postmodernism in the arts and um, and um, Dadaism, right? That that sort of assault on conventions mm -hmm. that um, that deconstructs everything, including including concepts of beauty. Mm -hmm. um, I think that you see the evidence all over the place today that mm -hmm. that there there does seem to be a rejection of the idea of beauty that there's people simply don't want Plato or they don't want Pythagoras to be right about this. Mm -hmm. Yeah, there's consequences of there being an something objective to beauty, and it's that I might not be beautiful. Yeah, <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. You know? But I think even it broader than that, there is there is something of an attack on mathematics and just its objectivity that it asserts, right? And I think that is part of the fruit of of the study of the liberal arts and the quadrivium here. And it's that you arrive at conclusions, right? Right. Conclusions that have been have been shown um, and they can't be just wantonly rejected. Right. Uh, so that that study, just back to your political points before, right? Um, that directs discussion, mm. right? It roots it uh, or orders it towards truth. It, it puts on the table at the beginning that um, there is something true that we need to discover mm -hmm. in the course of this conversation and that it's right. not just a battle of wills. Sure. Yeah. So that's, that's what's interesting about that though, Joe is um, the um, today you've got, of course, scientific thinkers, right. Mm -hmm. And they're willing to grant that that's the case with mathematics and things that, mm -hmm you know, th things that involve mathematical reasoning, but they're not willing to grant it for anything else. And so, you know, they want this sort of, um, basically they want a world in which you can't really speak meaningfully of the concept of truth apart from mathematics at all, uh, mm -hmm. which isn't really what we find in the ancient world. No. Um, but, but that to me seems to be, so it's, in other words, it's sort of a compromise of a postmodernist. Right, that they might say, yeah, I mean, it's not like there's no truth at all. It's just that it's only mathematical. What's What's interesting about the quadrivium is the the two of them are very abstract and purely abstract, and that's arithmetic and geometry. But then the other two bend the principles of arithmetic and geometry towards the mm -hmm. real. Right, that's mm -hmm. that's like the very first sort of uh, science that would involve sensible things. Right, um, and if we if we are educated in that way and we learn to anchor the sorts of principles from uh, logic and mathematics and apply them to the real, uh, that I think is the, the bridge that people seem to be missing. And I think it's at least interesting that musical theory and astronomy are so rarely studied, right? <laughs> the, though sure. astronomy has something of an analog, right? In modern physics, there mm -hmm. is a lot of, mathematical sciences that do study the empirical still mm -hmm. um, and obviously they work and everyone knows they work because we can you know land a rocket on the moon if we want um mm -hmm. 
Yeah, so I wonder where the disconnect comes then between <laughs> mathematical physics, which clearly does apply to the real, and I guess the step from the quantitative reasoning involved there to what people tend to call verbal reasoning mm-hmm. and how they, they, they want to escape the sorts of conclusions that logic will give you among um, abstractions and words if quantity is not involved. Yeah, yeah, I think it is pretty disingenuous. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, that could be. I mean, I think that it, it really takes um, language to introduce, um, I think, concepts about the good. Yeah. You know, um, and the kinds of things that you, t- you deal with and logic and, and sort of the fuller sort of development of logic and, uh, of course, in philosophy, um, where you can start to, to bring in sort of uh, those sorts of things. Your quantity doesn't quite give you essence. It doesn't quite give right. you teleology. It doesn't give you those other things. And so you could kind of maybe allow for a kind of quantitative reasoning. Albeit, I think you're right that it's kind of like as long as it's over there, mm-hmm. <laughs> it's almost sort of like as long as like math is not political, so we can just put it up there, mm-hmm. right? And and let it be, maybe. I don't know. Um, but I think that you're right uh to about the connecting of the the abstract to the concrete in uh sensation right there with uh astronomy and music right you hear it right mm-hmm. uh in in music you see it in astronomy right mm-hmm. um these uh mathematical sort of formulations working themselves out which is all really i think you know is it's meant to train you up towards right um the abstractions you'd use in philosophy and also uh in, ultimately in uh, political discourse um the uh you know so where we are sort of in terms of thinking about liberal arts then right is that we have these four right that eventually in ancient rome uh get to be called uh well, not really ancient rome kind of late rome uh the quadrivium as far as i've seen boethius is probably the first who called the four the quadrivium um and he's a quite late uh, figure, right, mm-hmm. uh, in in Roman history. Um, and then you know we have the other two, the third, the other one that gets introduced. And again, I haven't quite finished my research on this, so someone else might know this better. Is uh, grammar, right? And the the Greek word that underlies that uh, word grammar uh, just means actually letters, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and I'm not sure if this was a feature in ancient Greece, or this was primarily a Roman uh, interest, but it certainly is the case that the Romans really thematized reading ancient works. Um, and, you know, also were interested in composing works, but really reading, right? Uh, that the grammar here, of course, involves grammatical structures and that sort of thing, but it also means reading, right? Uh, Augustine talks about this a great deal, right? Uh, in terms of his own arts education, that, um, you know, m- reading and memorizing vast quantities if they needed, right? And and related works is sort of um, considered essential, right? Now, why mm-hmm. is that? Well, you could, um, there's a couple of things. One, certainly reading deeply, and broadly in great literature does give you the um, does give you sort of resources, right. For rhetoric, right. Mm-hmm. And yeah. for logic, right. So that it, it, it sort of gives you sort of data you might need. 
Also, Cicero talks about it. Uh, that was what Augustine, but Cicero talks about it as a kind of uh, education in the in the mores of the fathers, right? So that we, you know, kind of learn of you know, of great and bad <laughs> characters illustrated mm-hmm. in literature. Um, but another reason, and and I think this is important, is that uh, this kind of goes right at kind of what we were talking about with with mathematics. Sort reading is a way to learn about the world. <laughs> Right. Mm-hmm. That is lang quantity is one mm-hmm. way of understanding the world, but so is language. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. In a lot of ways, the liberal arts anticipate some of the 20th century analytic arguments about knowledge and language going together, right? Um, you know, it's it's it might be possible for there to be knowledge without language, but it's really hard to figure that out, <laughs> right? Yeah. Certainly in our working of language, right? And and knowledge, being able to speak. Being able to write, being able to read, right, mm-hmm. and and to use those signs is fundamental, right, to our ability to understand the world. Yeah, right. So there's uh, a which lot. I think to is say. really interesting. There's a lot mm-hmm. to say here. First, I would argue, um, they're interested in establishing a common touchstone for their society right yes yeah mm-hmm. we have to be kind of talking about the same things in order to actually have a meaningful conversation mm-hmm. and if you're thinking about if you think not only in an individual instance this conversation right here right now but mm. think of your life as a citizen as being one of participation in an ongoing conversation with everyone else in the polis sure then yes it makes sense that you would have a common reference that you have common reference points right there are things Mm -hmm. that you're all talking about Mm -hmm. and i don't really think there's any way to avoid that in any society Mm -hmm. so back then you know the important thing was um was literature Mm -hmm. um in 20th century america it became in 20th century america you saw that it became for many people just sort of what was on television (laughs) right right? sure Mm -hmm. yeah uh, but people talked about these things. Those were their reference sure. points. So I think that's an important thing to understand, right? That you're 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 trying to establish a conversation, but it's a conversation mm-hmm. too that's in continuity with the past. It's not just yes, today's yeah. discussion, sure. right? Yeah, very um, important, very important to that, right? Because really even even twentieth century critics of a conservative, <clears throat> uh, or even not, particularly like say W. H. Auden in the United States talked about the the horrors of the newspaper right yeah like they hated the newspaper actually before tv yeah because they thought it, it, it admired us too much in the immediate right. right and in things that really like do i really need to know about a coal mine that you know collapsed in nebraska people in nebraska yeah. need to know about it right but do i probably not you know, uh-huh. it's like, like I'm not going to do anything about it except for have some feelings about it. I mean, maybe mm-hmm. grieve, right? Whereas I could be instead reading the Bible, right? Mm-hmm. Or reading Shakespeare, which I do need to read <laughs> and everyone needs to know about, right? Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. So then, you know, you look at the um, the way the concept of grammar came, came up uh, over mm-hmm. time, right? Where, yeah, so it talks about letters, right? That's basically the idea. But the letters are the building blocks of the words and the words are the building blocks of the of the sentences and paragraphs mm-hmm. and ultimately of whole arguments, right? Treatises. Mm-hmm. So 
the idea of grammar, right, is really laying the foundations for, um, it's giving me the raw materials, right, upon which sure. I could then build rational arguments. I think that's um, correct. Yeah. And understand I, rational arguments too. Like when you teach logic to students, especially to high school students, being able to recognize the subject and predicate sometimes exactly. a little bit of work, right? And that's, and that's the reason that to see the proposition. Sure. Yeah, that's the reason it comes in that order, right? Grammar, logic, and then rhetoric. Right? So beyond logic, beyond the actual construction of a logical argument, I have to, I really want to make the truth that I've presented something that people might actually want to be true. Sure. It's attractive. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Desirable. Uh, I think it's, uh, that's, that's true. Um, I think the grammar, you know, uh, has this, uh, Kind of sometimes is is a little bit the uh, poor the 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 poor cousin, right? Uh, yeah. I think because we tend to think of it only as grammar, and people find that boring. Um, now, I personally love grammar; <laughs> I think it's fun, a lot of fun. But I don't think it's just grammar in the way we think about it. I think it is letters, and I think it does provide us, as I said, with these other res like provides us with resources, as you said, Rich. It provides us with a common stock, right, of mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. uh, references. I think very, very importantly, it provides us with the narratives that shape our culture and the way that we think about ourselves. I think stories and narratives are extremely important mm -hmm. uh, in our education and the way we think about, I think, propedeutic to ethics as a philosophy is learning ethics in literature, right? You should learn, you should be able to to feel and to recognize Aeneid's successes and failures along the way. You know, you should know why yeah. it was right for him uh, um, to uh, abandon his, you know, his his lover, right? Uh, his temporary lover, and 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 finish his journey, right? You mm -hmm. should know why, you know, uh, why the rage of Achilles was disordered and so forth, mm -hmm. right? Or you should be able to feel it, right? Maybe you can't give an argument for it, right? Well, yeah, the later step it, right? is to yeah. make the argument. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, if yeah. you look yeah. into Comachian ethics, right? Uh, mm -hmm. Aristotle starts right out, and he's like, look, uh, if you're not already kind of moral. Right, you need yeah, decent yeah. passions already. Yeah, right. yeah. We kind of forget that sometimes, right? So, and 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 also that we can have moral knowledge. How to put this? Practical moral knowledge, I would say, mm -hmm. that I should not do this, right? Without it necessarily being able to um, demonstrate it, right? Yeah. Um, but in any event, uh, the I want to I want to add to that though. That I think that there is something like for the individual just reading the literature uh, for themselves and doing their own thought. But I think that. Um, studying the books and stories that have been handed on by your people also gives you the sense of who you are and who your yes. ancestors were yes. and who, who it is that built this country that you're living in. So I think, um, yeah, the discrimination of our ancestors as to what stories they read and they thought, wow, this is worthy. I'm going to pass this on to my children and they're going to read it. And generations of educators discriminated between good stories and bad stories, right? Mm -hmm. um, and many have stood the test of time. And so I think that reading those stories in particular, there's, there's of course, the individual value, but I think it also just tells us a lot about where we came from, who we sure. are, and about the society that we're living in that we are trying to become a citizen of. Yes, yeah, I think it's very important. And very instructive in what we call the liberal arts today or broadly the humanities and like that. What department is very often most directly radicalized in progressive ideas is the literature department. Mm -hmm. Isn't that interesting, right? They tear down our stories, 
Yeah. Right. You know, they, they, they take our stories that, that might have inspired past generations. Right. And sort of deconstruct them. Right. To show yeah. that they're actually instruments of oppression. Right. Or something of that nature. Now that painting with a broad brush, but I do think that that's uh, that, that uh, is an important uh, element there. Um, so, you know, if, if you think of, of grammar and then of course we also have logic, right. Which is the art of reasoning, right. Which, you know, guides us towards um, the truth and then rhetoric, which allows us to present the truth in an attractive way, right. In a way that's uh, persuasive and inspiring. Right. Then you start to see like, Oh yeah. Like this, this, this idea of the liberal arts as political, right. As, as this important aspect of being a citizen but also important to being a human being, right? Well, I think we'd say even more deeply, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but maybe at first blush, maybe what we need to recognize is, yeah, this does make you a good citizen, one capable of deliberation in the way you were talking about, Joe, and also Rich, that here we have these stories we draw on. We draw on the Bible. We draw on you know, Scripture or Shakespeare or whatever it is. We're drawing on these resources. We're using logic then to try to formulate uh um, you know, logical arguments about what we should or should not do, our arguments that are true, right? Or, you know, mm-hmm. at least as true as we can get. And then we try to make it persuasive and attractive to our peers, right? To me, that seems to be fundamentally being a statesman, right? Fundamentally being a senator uh, or a citizen, right? Is is being able to do those sorts of things. Citizen in the, the high sense of one capable of engaging and deliberation about the good of the the political community right so it's interesting like that that all came together over centuries and over two different you know civilizations greek and roman now obviously they're you know connected to each other but this goes on right even further right into uh the you know medieval period where um you know we have uh this kind of learning codified by the end of you know, sort of Rome, Roman civilization. So if you kind of arbitrarily mark the end of Rome at 410, a lot of people do where Alaric invades and kills the last or deposes the last uh, Roman emperor. Um, we have a, a, philo- a, a not a really a philosopher, a scholar, right? Uh, jurist um, named Martianus Capella, right? Uh, who probably deserves a lot more credibility than he did because he sort of, wrote down the codification of this stuff, right? Right after this is, he was born right when Rome fell, but interestingly, this is kind of one of those fascinating parallels of history. He was in the North African part of Rome and North African Rome didn't fall as early as um, the central uh, Rome fell right in Italy, right? in Spain, it actually held on for some decades before it was invaded and taken over and literally vandalized. <laughs> right? <laughs> <laughs> right? But, you know, what, one thing that struck me when I was doing this research is who else is from that period and from North Africa and Roman who plays an important uh, role in, in transitioning classical learning into medieval learning? Well, of course, our hero, Augustine, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, we're talking <laughs> right here, the late 300s, early 400s, I think, Augustine dies or his last writings are around the 430s or 420s. 430, yeah. Yeah, so. He died in 430. Okay, so yeah, there you go, right? And like 
these guys are kind of not contemporaries exactly, but pretty close, right? Mm-hmm. And from North Africa. Now, interestingly, um, Martianus was not a Christian. He was a pagan Neoplatonist, uh, but sort of, you know, of the same class, actually, uh, kind of a middling uh, class uh, in North Africa that um, that Augustine came from. And one of the things that's fascinating about Augustine, especially towards the end of his life, is he kind of knew, right? Like, I think, you know, John Riss makes a really good argument that he kind of knew, look, Rome is, is coming to an end. Mm-hmm. And what am I going to preserve for the Christians that come after us? Right. In a very conscientious way, I think. And uh, I think this uh, character as well, Capella does that, right. He uh, codifies these things. It's this uh, strange title. It's the marriage of philology and mercury. Right. Uh, and I won't go to all the mythological reasons it's called that, but it has to do, you may have noticed whenever you see the liberal arts depicted in medieval pictures, there are always seven women, right. Mm-hmm. Uh, coming together. And those are, uh, actually the, uh, the bridesmaids of, uh, philology who is marrying Mercury. But anyways, it's a, a kind of weird <laughs> background that he gives to all this, but this text is really fascinating to me, um, both for its own sake, but. It is the text that um, the Carolingian Renaissance was based on. That is, what Alcuin and the men who were involved in uh, Charlemagne's Renaissance, right? So this is in the 8th century, right? Mm -hmm. Speeding into the medieval period. What they knew of the liberal arts, they primarily knew through this text, right? This was the text where they... Here we have the seven liberal arts, and we have the you know the quadrivium and the trivium, and them all spelled out sort of in a in a systematic way, right? Um, so you know he you know Martianus isn't sort of himself like a great innovator or anything like that, but he's kind of one of these people who's good at preserving things, right, and passing them on. I think all of that's kind of interesting because this was, as a matter of fact, right, and and Charlemagne I think kind of doesn't get is due today any man anymore to be perfectly honest but you know he's critical right um in the rebirth of western civilization and i say rebirth purposefully uh you know 410 to 800 700 are really our dark days right for western civilization i mean you get profound de-urbanization loss of learning you know um you know, the some of the English writers of the time talk about, you know, the Anglo-Saxons who had by this time become Christian and broadly civilized, you know, you know, living among the ruins of buildings that they couldn't comprehend how to build. Mm-hmm. Right. They could look at the Roman ruins and be like, I have no idea. I don't we don't know how to do this. Right. You know, like and you know, think about how what an impact that would be, right? To kind of think of your own civil I'm living in the ruins of a prior civilization. Right. Yeah, you know that's that that's a profoundly inferior to what. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right, and I can, and it's not a theory. I can look and point. Yeah. I can't make that marble arch, yeah, and they right. could. It's like a post-apocalyptic yeah. world. It really, it yeah. really yeah. is. Yeah, yeah. You know? And I think a lot of you know uh, medieval civilization is people trying to get out of that. Right, they're trying to move into re to to build a new civilization, one that preserves what's good from the past, right? 
And you see this in the work of Alcuin. You see this in the work of the Benedictine monks. You see this uh, yeah. in, in all these different preservers, right? They want to preserve what was good out of classical world, but they also are Christian, right? And they want to build, you know, sort of a, a new world. Although it is important to remember, by the time Rome fell, Rome had been Christian for a while, <laughs> right? Western, the Roman Empire, was not a pagan empire uh, when it fell, right? It was, mm -hmm. it was by that time a Christian empire. Um, but in any event, uh, rebuilding Rome, rebuilding, you know, what does Charlemagne want to be called when he gets, when he finally gets coronated? He's He's crowned by the Pope as emperor of the romans right that's 800 <laughs> you uh -huh. know, 400 years after the roman empire fell the dream of rome was very powerful still in the imagination of the people who were rebuilding western civilization and a very big part of that was recovering the learning right and in a way that may be surprising to us charlemagne was very thoughtful about this he said you know i my kingdom this empire needs to be improved in its learning and its understanding right that we can't be a strong empire if we remain mired in ignorance and so he purposefully recruited scholars from england from spain from italy to come to his palace right um and and to be part of his court right and to work together and collaborate together to you know uh uh restore learning and the two sort of things that all scholars talk about in this restoration of, of learning was a recovery of the liberal arts which had lost largely been lost right um and that that began promoted like in cathedral schools in monasteries all these sorts of places and the uh promulgation of the rule of saint benedict right so uh that those two things right were kind of charlemagne's reform movement right uh within his own sort of empire so the, that that contributed in a huge way to the development of the cathedral schools, the monastic schools, which eventually become the universities mm -hmm. and, and all those sorts of things, right? Liberal arts was right at the heart of that, right? Yeah. That is rebuilding, like in Charlemagne tell us, rebuilding a civilization, in this case, really hung on, or I shouldn't say hung on, but an important aspect, a very important contribution was regaining liberal arts education so it's interesting because um you know before we were talking about grammar right mm -hmm. writing things down um being able to sort of have a reference point right mm. the you know the monasteries if you think about the role that they played right mm -hmm. not only were they preserving knowledge but they were recovering it i think you did, did use the word recovery mm -hmm. at one point right they're recovering knowledge because mm -hmm. you have these texts and maybe there's right. just one example of it or fragments here and there mm -hmm. and you got to piece it together the monks spent years and years right mm -hmm. uh, copying and uh, collating ancient text and then um and now they were once again made available for a civilization to build upon and that was right. really important Absolutely. Absolutely. Right. Yeah, um, we, it's, it's, it's easy for us to not see the value of that because we're immersed in text and mm -hmm. immersed in digital information or whatever, you know? Um, but uh, yeah, I mean, those, those books were very precious. And then uh, think about Gregory the great in deciding that um, we needed to find a way to write down music 
mm -hmm. right to actually record yeah that's interesting uh, yeah. musical notation so that people could mm -hmm. sing the chants of the of the church without having to spend years going to rome and learning every single one by heart mm -hmm. right um that was a major revolution which mm -hmm. of course led far beyond just preserving the music of the liturgy sure right yeah, ultimately yeah. that laid the foundation for the writing of symphonies of symphonies in in the uh in the period of vivaldi and bach and Mozart. absolutely yeah i mean you see once you start really thinking about and looking at these historical examples um how important writing is and how important yeah. how, how powerful writing is how powerful the te you know text is right you can build things up with text you know memory is a great thing for sure right um and we we undermine probably the importance of of memory, but you know writing is is very powerful, right? When you're trying to build a society, trying to shape laws, trying to record you know deeds. Uh, I mean that both is like the legal document, but also things done. Uh, mm -hmm. All of those things, right? Um, you know, writing is writing and reading, right, uh, are so uh, important for. When I when I was preparing all this for my class in medieval philosophy, I was thinking about this as a way to frame medieval philosophy, right, as mm -hmm. part of this sort of reforming program, this you know rebuilding program to try to to you know restore Western civilization. Um, but you know, as as I was looking at it, I mean, I think it should be kind of a reminder to us, right, of our own need for the liberal arts, right. I I would want to defend you know two theses here at least uh, regar regarding the liberal arts, and I think it's illustrated by a history. One is that they are the things that make political community effective. You mm -hmm. can have political community without liberal arts. That's true. But if you want to make it more effective, more robust, uh, give it a greater tendency towards the common good, then I think the liberal arts are actually key, right? So I think they have a key political um importance and value but then also i think they have a key human value right mm -hmm. that is uh, to just us as human persons right uh how so well very clearly i think in terms of the truth right that is they they are means towards us growing in truth communicating truth making truth attractive you know and learning truth right so that you know they they create people who are informed and apt, not infallible, but, you know, have, right, the power, have powers that uh, equip them, right, uh, for finding the truth uh, and for communicating it uh, to others. So that, you know, on both of those pillars, right, I think you could say it's very important that we continue the liberal arts, right? And to be specific, I, I want to say, you know, I, I know more, with respect to the trivium, um, to be specific to say, you know, rhetoric and logic and and literature, grammar, what you would call it, right? And I would say a specific literature, right? That is, mm -hmm. we need to, uh, you know, this is where you, you, you can have the argument, but uh, I'll, I'm happy to have the argument <laughs> about, you know, the Western canon, you know, that mm -hmm. that there are texts that are in um, indispensable, Right. And that there are a lot of texts that maybe are interesting from this or that point of view, right? Or for this or that person or for this or that circumstance, but don't 
rival the Iliad, the Odyssey, the Aeneid, Beowulf, Shakespeare, Dante, etc. Right, Chaucer. Mm -hmm. uh, those are the texts that make us who we are, right, and uh, and really frame our civilization. And if if we want to recover our, our civilization, um, if we want to see a renewal in our civilization, I think a very important part of that is recovering the liberal arts. Yeah, I'm struck with the um, widespread suicide of so much of academia in this regard, where they've mm -hmm. basically, so many institutions, right, have just decided to reject um, the classical core mm -hmm. and uh, replace it with something, with something else, right? They and they do this very consciously, right, to tell a different story, to create mm -hmm. a different yeah. narrative mm -hmm. from that's the one point, that Rich. that's been received. Yeah. It's a rejection of civilization itself, or at least of our civilization. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and it's remarkable to me, though, that think about this, right? One of the key characteristics of our civilization is a belief in literature, yes, but a belief in logic, right? Mm -hmm. And and criticality. That's the hallmark of the West, right? Um, it's not the only one, right? Uh, and maybe not even the most important one, but I'd say it's pretty high up there, Right. Uh, as well as, of course, our interest in uh, persuasive uh, speech, um, you know that that those are things that, like you, you shouldn't, you should be very careful about losing. <laughs> right? Yeah, well, because you yeah. don't know what they've built. Now, maybe some people want to get rid of them, uh, right? Yeah. Uh, now that you know, if you want to kind of go down a, a different route of thinking, right? You know, maybe we don't want citizens who are are, are uh, excellent in political deliberation. Maybe we want easily manipulated herds, right? And that, that could be true, right? What do yeah, you think, then Joe? the last thing you want is liberal arts, if that's, that's true. right. <laughs> that's yeah, right. that seems so clear to me. But uh, you've got to be really careful, though. Um, you know, if you dethrone, if you dethrone logic and persuasive argumentation, mm -hmm. um, then you have to replace it, right? That vacuum gets filled. And what it gets filled with is is violence, mm. right? Coercion. Um, I'd say that and, and bread and games. Yeah, yeah. I think there is a there is a like a. I mean, I think we do experience a kind of persuasion. Richie, tell me if you think this is correct or not. But uh, one that is only images, you know, like a, a kind of technological sophistry if there could be uh, such a thing yeah like the, the meme wars and things like yeah that's yeah that sort of thing you know where we um work it feels like we're constantly manipulated oh yeah um, but yeah. that's just, yeah that's that's true so it's not i guess you don't necessarily have to kill me or something but right but it is just manipulation me, though right? yeah just make and me it, stupid and draw me around by the nose yeah right right yeah the big thing that's been lost is logic, right? Logic in the Western canon. We've that's what we've gotten rid of. I think rhetoric is still around in certain forms, mainly sophistical forms, right? Sophistical forms, yeah, yeah. So we've got yeah, now maybe one of the one one point though uh, to counter you there a little bit though, uh, Joe, or, or I agree with what you're saying, but is one of the things that we need to do is also to make the truth attractive, right? You know, and we're not we haven't been as good, I think, as maybe we ought to be. And making the truth, you know, uh, attractive to people, right? Beautiful. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But it's like Aristotle said at the beginning of the Ethics. I think Dr. Bozzichelli was mentioning before. Um, 
if you're already got a little bit of, of virtue, we, sure. can, we can work on this. If we can you don't, work on what that, you though, need yeah. is not to read this book. You need to be punished, right? And, just, <laughs> That's right. and so, yeah. yeah, making the truth really attractive is good, but also I agree. It, it just takes sometimes people to crack. You need away. discipline. Yeah, you need yeah. discipline. I would put it this way, you know, discipline and good stories, right? Yeah, yeah. Uh, the discipline, yeah. The discipline That's exactly what kids need, right? <laughs> the discipline needs to come from virtuous people, though. And sure. Yes, kind of yeah. The Mm. Yeah. I mean, I think uh, was uh, sometimes Thomas says, you know, he gives us this little um, progression where he talks about uh, that, um, you know, the father uh, has the authority to exhort. Right. Um, mm -hmm. And to, to punish with an eye towards pedagogy mm -hmm. up to a point. But then, you know, if the person and, and then you have customs, right, that come in, we try to you have good customs that will habituate the person. But if even these won't work, right, you know, then we have the coercion of the law. But that's a slightly different different point. But I think in terms of renewing our own sort of um, where we are, I think, you know, obviously discipline and that it goes to sort of families and um, and schools maybe to some degree. But, uh, but then also, you know, um, the right stories, right, um, that way, then you're sort of primed for logic, right, and rhetoric uh, when uh, when you get to it. Um, and even philosophy, right, and that the sure. literature stories provide it a lot of matter to consider for a young person that lacks experience, right? Mm -hmm. so. Right. You can benefit from, yeah, you would benefit from basically a, you know, the quasi experience of of, right. uh, of having read what happened to this guy in the scenario, right? Um, the choices he made uh, in the situations in which he found himself and how they turned out for him. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so... Uh, Go ahead. Uh, well, one thing I just wanted to add here is that this was, uh, even though most of the things I've been talking about have historically have been ancient and medieval um, and European, this was not lost on the Founding Fathers of America who very, very clearly... Uh, were engaged in this literature uh, and thought that it was very much necessary, right, mm -hmm. um, for uh, the American Republic. Now, I do want to add that when they were saying those things, we didn't have the universal franchise that we have now, right? We had a yep. much we had a much um, smaller franchise. One that I think it's imaginable that could maintain this degree of education, right? We're not, you know, this is not Plato's Republic necessarily that you're arguing for, for like the, like the wise philosopher, right? What we're looking for is the informed, critically minded, um, eloquent, right? Statesman, right? Mm -hmm. um, who, you know, it's, it could be a philosopher too, but doesn't necessarily have to be a scientist, I guess is what I'm saying, right? Um, it can still be sort of in... In, in sort of the practical life uh, and so forth and should be, right? Um, that's the kind of education that was supposed to be the universities that were founded in America originally, Harvard and Yale, uh, Princeton and so forth, were supposed to be liberal arts colleges uh, that were attached to seminaries, right? Mm -hmm. And that's actually the pattern you find, right? Is that, that, that there wasn't, that people like George Washington, Thomas Jefferson, kind of the, we could call it the patrician class in the United States uh, was supposed to receive this kind of education. Right. Um, now you tell me, I, you know, 
uh, now it becomes more complicated. I think once you have a universal franchise, right. Mm -hmm. And, you know, can you expect everybody to, to reach that level, this level of education? Um, you know, I'm not, not sure about that. Yeah, at some point in history, you got, you started getting people like Mortimer Adler who would say yes, but it, mm -hmm. I don't know when that started because you go back to Plato and Aristotle and there's not that sort of optimism about who can actually undertake this sort of education. If well, for no other reason than the lack of uh, if, leisure required to do so. So if sure. you think about somebody like Adler though, you might say, well, look, he, he was in the 20th century by then we had commoditized print, right? The printing press and stuff. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. you could produce books cheaply for the masses, right? Mm -hmm. There's, and anyone pretty much could learn how to read. They could learn the actual, you know, processing of, of print material into concepts, right? Almost sure. anybody could do that. So I think somebody like Adler was pretty optimistic for that reason it was just mm -hmm. technically possible to make these things available to people mm -hmm. the naive thing perhaps yeah. is that having the ability to having access to it on the one hand is different say from having the desire for it mm -hmm. right um, sure and that's not something that that's it's not that doesn't come to us just because we've been given access it comes to us because we've been properly formed mm-hmm um, right, right. So then if you advocate, let's say, for, um, you know, uh, compulsory education, which historically, interestingly enough, in the Catholic Church, early on, there was opposition to that move for a variety of reasons we can't get into here. But, um, but the idea of compulsory education is supposed to create the scenario in which that formation mm -hmm. actually comes to people. Mm-hmm. And that would facilitate, right? That would make a universal franchise something that um, that seemed feasible. Yeah, I think. Yeah, I think that you're correct. I want to make two objections, uh -huh. though. Uh, one is the hyper real, right? So I've used mm -hmm. this phrase before. This is, uh, I think, Danton is the name of the art theorist who talks about this, right? But that one of the things that that's interesting about Ameri about American culture, Western culture today, right, is that the representation matters more than the reality, mm -hmm. right? The image is everywhere, right? The computer image, the media image, it's just all around us, fusing our consciousness. You know, it literally makes it hard for some people to go to sleep, right? Um, that the power of the hyper real um, is just so much more forceful than long reading of a book, <laughs> mm -hmm. right? Or at least maybe the superficial power. If you really internalize, right, a great text, maybe that's a little different, but it's just hard to get away from the hyper real. It's so distracting, right? Mm -hmm. And then the second is, um, I'm just not, I don't think everybody is equally intelligent um, and therefore yeah. equally apt to that, to that education. I mean, I, yeah. I don't know the relative percentages, but I think, you know, just some people are, have less intellectual capacity than others. Yeah, yeah, that's true. So, I mean, I, I think, you know, I'm just sort of I'm trying to... Sure, argue, yeah. I'm trying to give what I think maybe might be somebody like Adler's point mm -hmm. of view. Um, equal intelligence isn't necessarily what's needed, I guess, just mm -hmm. sufficient intelligence. Yeah. Sufficient, yeah, we're, <laughs> um, that's right. Yeah. Right, but, mm -hmm. um, but even then, right, uh, yeah, there's a 
there is some sort of a curve and there are people who probably can't they're not sufficiently intelligent to participate yeah. what's um, interesting is is that you're pointing out that adler adler is able to advance his thesis because of you know developments and especially yeah. technology and then it seems as dr smith is saying that it's precisely also because of technology that it's becoming <laughs> even more difficult. ironically yeah, yeah. so there okay. was maybe a peak period when adler was was uh is this right balance? but you could understand yeah. <laughs> why you might have that kind of optimism sure yeah that, right? of course yeah um, i agree i agree but realistically has it borne out um yeah. one really well, probably not yeah I, I don't I should have prepared this a little bit, but uh, I think um, there are plenty of resources to to allow you to to reference these claims on your own. But you know what we are actually experiencing right now is literally a decline in literacy, right? Mm -hmm. Like that has not happened in decades, century, right? Yeah, and we're actually seeing literacy rates uh, uh, decline. And then if you talk about sort of what they call deep literacy, right, mm -hmm. that is the ability to read a hard book long yeah. form that's oh yeah that's becoming really it's almost uh, it's almost unheard of today it's it's just like he's yeah. you know down um and then uh you know really across the board academic you know our, our sort of educational standards uh are less and less and less now what some people will say and this is really interesting is they'll not deny the data right but they'll claim that we are just we've um it's not that we're less intelligent, it's that we're differently intelligent. And that there's a kind of intelligence we have now that doesn't need as much linguistic analysis. Reading long books is just not that important um, because we have computers and we have uh, technology. So that one way this is put, uh, you may have heard it is, you know, that we still have plenty of intelligence. It's just digital now rather than an, an uh, analog. You right. saying that we've outsourced our intelligence to computers? Yeah, that's that what I'm hearing. Sound good. <laughs> <laughs> that part of it, right? It sounds a lot. But like that we could get, like, we could get in very short videos, right? As much information, yeah. right, as you would get in a book. That's true. Right? There is an efficiency yeah. increase in the so. capacity to integrate knowledge. Is I think um, at an all-time low. The, you know, in other words, to, mm. to string together a long argument that shows how <laughs> various concepts and truths are interrelated, sure. um, that's key to that's key to actually a, 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 a liberating um, a liberating intelligence, and and mm. it's it's dying in our society. This just goes back to again. It's like I, I don't think, yeah, um, it's key to a, a good citizen. It's key, mm -hmm. key to a good man, right? But if you don't want good citizens or good men, then it's just not that valuable. <laughs> you know? Right. Like, I'd rather you be, so I'd kind of rather you be kind of dumb about everything in your life except for your narrow technical field in which you do well. I don't really want you thinking about justice in itself, the good in itself, whether or not you're, I and mean, I want you to be very proficient in your narrow field of yeah. productivity, but outside that narrow field of productivity, it's just really not that important that you think well. Yeah, and that, that only works for old societies that are, do not have universal enfranchisement, right? Mm -hmm. It's fine if, if you're going to be a blacksmith and you're going to be the best blacksmith around, but you can't read. Okay, 
But if, if you're a blacksmith that can't read and can't think, and you're gonna, you have the equal say in the assembly as <laughs> everyone else, then then we have difficulty, right? That's right. That's that right. that yeah. was a point Adler made, and I think everyone generally agrees, right? If that we're gonna have universal enfranchisement, um, and it's going to go well, we have to figure out, yeah, how to how to integrate the liberal yeah, because the alternative is in fact um, tyranny yeah. with the cooperation of the very people being tyrannized, yeah. And, Right. I mean, you just we work you up through manipulative uh, sophistry to firm us. And you're not really free. Make, you're not making real judgments. You're you're just you're voting us into office and then we're running your life. Mm -hmm. um, that that's not a world. Now, here's we're we're long in this discussion. So I mm -hmm. I want to I want to. um I want to give us an opportunity to sort of wrap up with maybe some optimistic thoughts. Okay. Let's start with Joe. Give us a view. Into the future, maybe that, that gives us hope. Well, okay. I, I was thinking the whole time that, um, yeah, the liberal, the reason we're having this discussion is because the liberal arts are not being taught. Right. But there is shadows of it still. Right. And I thought it'd be helpful to at least articulate what we still have that's being taught mm -hmm. even in, you know, public, public mm -hmm. primary and secondary schools and um and then just identify like where where are the weak points um that might be practically helpful or at least help us better assess uh yeah like where where the weaknesses are in the people's education and if it's especially something like we study pure mathematics uh quite thoroughly but that we are somehow missing the the jump from quantitative to verbal reasoning and, and losing the sort of certitude that mathematics carries in that jump, mm. right? That's, I think, at least a helpful assessment, even if it's not optimistic. It's at least helpful, I hope, mm. right? So, yeah, what do you guys think we have retained from the liberal arts just in ordinary state education? Because we still have grammar, right? There's still sure. something yeah. like rhetoric there. Yeah. I mean, I, I would say that it's possible, right, uh, to go to uh, a university, uh, a state university, uh, and find a good class in logic and to find a good class in critical reasoning. Uh, most universities still have that, right? Now, it might not be exactly sort of um, have the emphasis on classical logic that you might like, but you also might be surprised. I mean, I, I the book that I use when I teach at state universities uh, is a book called The Art of Reasoning um, by Kelly, and it's fantastic. It's got a lot of modern logic in it, but it's got a ton of classical logic in it uh, as well. Plenty of it, plenty of informal fallacies, uh, things of that nature. Um, and, you know, we do some truth tables and some modern stuff too. Uh, but that's very, th that still exists, right? You know, you need to look for it, right? It's not the sort of thing that mm -hmm. usually you're going to be required to take, right? If you're going to a state university, but critical reasoning, or just a straight logic would be best. But if you can't get logic, then critical reasoning uh, class uh, would probably be there and probably pretty good uh, just in terms of learning the, the, the rudimentary, you know, tools of logic. Um, you know, we still have speech classes. Um, so there is, there is that. I, I don't know about their quality overall, to be honest, uh, but uh, you know, speech classes do exist. 
as you say, literature exists. You know, I went to, and again, maybe I'm a little dated on this, probably am, but, you know, I went to a very center, center, middle of the stream kind of university, uh, neither really right nor very left at that time. Um, you know, and I was able to take a pretty good education in literature, right? Like I, I read the Aeneid, I read, uh, uh, Dante, you know, those sorts of things were part of our literature. There was some silly stuff in there too, but I would say most of it was quite good. Chaucer was in there and so forth. So, I, I mean, I think that that does exist. You just kind of have to look, you know, and this mm -hmm. is what I advise students on is you need to be, if you're going to try to get that in a collegiate setting, you just need to be really mindful and do research on like the school, the curriculum, you know, that sort of thing. See if you can get some networking information, right. You know, on like, who's a good professor, that sort of thing. So there are, there are, it is out there, right. Um, you just have to be, I think, careful and mindful about where you find it. I want to take you down a level though. Uh, Cause I think that the sort of education that's absolutely necessary for civic incorporation is primary and secondary, right. Sure. I don't think we want to say that every person needs to go to college. No, right. No, um, no. And I'm wondering at the primary secondary level, it's still, you know, we, we still teach uh, prime in primary school. We still teach grammar. There's mm -hmm. still something like rhetoric there. Logic seems to have completely mm -hmm. been missed. Right? Yeah. Skipping from grammar to rhetoric is bad though. Yeah. I think that that is a huge gap that. Yeah. That's a good needs point. To be corrected. Cause that's yeah. sophistry. Yeah. And that's what I think seems to feed into our current civic life, mm -hmm. right? Is that mm -hmm. that's the way people know how to persuade and that's the way they are persuaded. Yeah, well, I think, yeah, well, sometimes people will say back, well, we teach critical reasoning in every field, right? Yeah. Uh, and I'm always, you know, I always like, no, you don't. <laughs> you, wouldn't, <laughs> you wouldn't say that about your field, you know? Right, right. <laughs> uh, so, yeah. Yeah. But, uh, um, yeah, that's a really good observation, I think. Obviously, there's a lot of the, I mean, what you participate in, Joe, with the Classical Academy kind of movement is, I think, a big uh, resource for people. Um, and yeah, then, classical you know, schools will often set aside their middle school and call it the logic school, right? They talk about mm -hmm. their primary school as the grammar school, and then there's the logic school, and then there's the rhetoric school. Yeah. So yeah. there there are those options available. Sure. And, and uh, in, um, yeah, in the, in the intentional Christian world, right, in... Um, in a certain segment of Catholicism and um, among Baptists and mm. evangelicals of a certain stripe, you do find um, a movement to recover mm -hmm. the liberal arts, classical learning. Um, you know, and um, there are there is encouraging work going on uh, sure. at all levels of education. It's just that right now it's it's the minority of places. Right, right, right. Um, but I do think that there there is something for us to get behind. There are resources for us. Sure. So that's good. I mean, I think mm -hmm. we could conceivably recover civilization. It's been done before. That's right. It has been done before in in in, in dire circumstances. Yeah. <laughs> just just need a Charlemagne. So all right, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> Poor gentlemen. <laughs> ladies in the audience although statistically it's mostly <laughs> um the uh thank you for a, a a great conversation and um i really uh joe you're doing good work and um 
pe people, I know in your line of work, you don't get thanked as much as you probably should. So <laughs> thanks. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, so yeah, it was a great conversation and, um, I, there's so much to follow up on in the future. I'm sure we can come back to this discussion again. Um, but in the meantime, uh, for those of you in the audience, thanks for listening. Uh, don't forget to don't forget to like if you found some value here. Subscribe and um, and sign up for our Patreon page. Um, there's some value in that. All right. Uh, God bless.